It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins and I'm in Sydney. He's Jeff Lemon and he's in Melbourne. And we're going to have a conversation about all things cricket around the world. It'll culminate in an interview with Ange Pippos, who's made a fantastic new documentary about the Women's T20 World Cup last year in Australia's campaign and the attempt to break the world record. It's called The Record uh, when they filled the G or near enough to fill the G last year. So stick around for that conversation in a bit. Lots to get through as always, Jeff. And as I mentioned, we're separated again. We're recording down the Zoom screen, which wasn't what we were expecting when we sketched out the show this time last week. But once again, coronavirus intervened. Once again, hearts meet from a distance uh, <laughs> over the, the wide blue oceans. Uh, well, there's not much ocean between Melbourne and Sydney, is it? It depends which way you go around. If you fly, you have to come in over the coast when you land in Sydney. But yeah, you, you went off for a couple of days for a break and ended up being locked out of the state and here I am still here but with uh, everything looking pretty good hopefully it's over by the time this show comes out just yeah about. I hope so in the end I had the option of coming back to Melbourne but the because I was already in New South Wales it was like well do I go back to Melbourne to sit in my friend's flat for five days or do I stay in Sydney uh, where we're able to sort of roam free as it were so 
I went with the latter option, even if that meant uh, being interstate, so to speak, for Winnie's birthday. Um, we'll have another crack at celebrating that on Saturday in Melbourne, provided uh, the case numbers stay as they are and, and the lockdown in Melbourne ends on Thursday and we can get back down there ahead of returning to London, actually, this time next week. So quite a bit of travel for us, but it will not deny us recording loads of cricket podcasts, Jeff. We've got quite a bit going on at the moment. We've been recording the India Daily, the India England Daily, sorry, we've been calling it, haven't we? That's been going out at Stumps each night on the podcast feed of course and on youtube a lot of fun as we hit record today though we haven't got a result in chennai but we know it'll be over at some point with england chasing squillions on a bunce and i doubt they'll last more than a session or two or maybe they'll still be batting at the close and you'll listen to this podcast and go ha 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 what a silly man you are but um, maybe you'll say that anyway after you've Mm. finished listening to us for a couple of hours but in all probability the test match will be over on the fourth day at chennai but we'll we'll crack on with other bits and pieces but before we uh, get into other bits and pieces one topic from the daily show or from that series in india that we elected to avoid on the stumps podcast was pitch politics we kind of realized that once you get into it it's pandora's box really on this one and that's been reflected in the almost hysterical stuff on social media uh, over the last few days certainly my replies have been an absolute sewer regrettably um so uh but hey that's the way these things go uh when emotions are highly charged and yes the, the pitch as it was produced in chennai will i'm certain continue to prompt conversation around the world over the next few days when the icc make their ruling in the fullness of time but um yeah i thought we would just take a few minutes off the top to go through where we stand well, it, it's kind of like we're trying to figure out this subject and we sort of had half a conversation on it the other day and and when we were off air and realised if we try to talk about this on The Daily Show, we're supposed to get through the whole day in 15 minutes. You <laughs> can spend 15 minutes on this Easily. subject we might. And, and probably would but, and because we have differing views on it. It was Anna Forsyth, one of our listeners, who was writing saying, I hate it when mummy and daddy fight when we were arguing about something on the okay. show. Um, but, I, I mean, I don't necessarily have a you know, a concrete position on it, but I, I found it amusing that, you know, on a, on a pitch where India went and made 350 quite comfortably and then England got bowled out for 100, uh, all of the English take on it was, oh, this is a terrible surface. It's unfit for test cricket is what I kept seeing, unfit for test cricket. And then India go and make another 300 on it and their number eight smashes a ton. And you think, hmm, well, it can't be that bad for batting if um, if that's the case. And I was trying to get you to explain to me what the position is, I guess. So maybe right. we start. Yeah, there. well, Sunil Gavaskar said on the commentary yesterday that if India made 130 in the second innings, it was proof the pitch was fine. So everybody has their own benchmarks on on what score is enough. In the end, I think India made 230-odd and Ashwin's innings was just quite outstanding in the circumstances. But if you watched the first hour of play yesterday, it was, I mean, turning in a way that you, we're not conditioned to seeing early on the third day. And the telltale signs were there on the first morning when... It, the pitch was exploding. So I suppose the best comparison was Pune in 2017, a test match I covered where it was doing precisely the same thing. On morning one, you see it exploding in a way that you'd expect on, say, day four or day five, which means that the test is going to end prematurely unless something completely bizarre happens along the way. I must say, my view's always been that home teams should go for gold on this front. I remember interviewing a curator in 
uh, Ranchi uh, back in 2017 and asking him about the process they go through in India and he acknowledged that the BCCI do sign off on pitches or rather they do give writing instructions in media speak to local curating staff or local ground staff so that they get the sort of pitch they want. So there's no sort of denying the fact that there are different elements at play and I think that's fine. I've never really had a problem with that. And you can dig up any number of quotes from coaches and, and captains over the years who've been fairly forthright in their in their uh, in their messaging through the media uh, to curators and, and ground staff, wanting to see certain pitches provided to their team to maximise their home advantage. So I don't have a problem with it. Where I get a bit frustrated is when it just gets denied as being the case. When it's oh no, it's perfectly fine. It's just normal. Well, okay. Okay, I'm not saying that there's never been a pitch that's been like this prepared for Test cricket before, but let's not deny the reality of what's played out here and let's play on those terms rather than this becoming sort of a, a parochial slanging match around conspiracy theories and tinfoil hats mm. and all the rest of it. But when, there's, when it comes to the difference and what it often gets compared to is why is a turning pitch any different to a green yep, wicket yep. in a country that favours seam bowling and fast bowling. And you were explaining that to me in terms of one but one surface being underprepared and one being overprepared, basically. Yeah. But, like, lay that out, because that argument's Yeah, I think that where I see it is there's extremes at both ends, right? So you can have a pitch that's way overprepared, like this one was as far as trying to see a test go across five days. And Michael Vaughan made this point pretty nicely on Crick Buzz. Mm. I thought that if if you love five-day test cricket, then, you know, you should hope that test matches have the chance to reach a fifth day. Now, that was always stacked against this pitch, right? I mean, it, it, look, it, it might, but mm. the probability, the central case to use the, the speak of bureaucrats was that this was going to be over very early out of the five days. And the other extreme is a pitch where it is so covered in grass and so green and offers so much to the team bowling first that it can have that effect as well. But a bog standard green seamer, I think we get kind of carried away with what a green seamer is. A run-of-the-mill green seamer, mm. as we traditionally understand it, in much the same way as a, a decent turning pitch on day one, but one not quite to this extreme, if you get through mm. the first day on a green seamer, often it can get better. The pitch from underprepared, if you want to use that terminology, does get better to bat throughout the course of the week. And by day or two or day three, right. we're not really talking about the pitch being a green seamer anymore. We're talking about it being a good surface to bat on. So I think that's where there is a bit of a distinction. So it's, but there it's are, like there basically are extremes. every New Zealand wicket. Yeah, that's right. It, it's like every pitch in New Zealand where it, it's green and it looks green. Maybe it does a bit on the first morning, but it doesn't actually do that much as opposed to, you know, there have been wickets historically that are crazy for, for seam bowling. But it, it seems to me like this. It, it's often not the surface. Like Stuart Broad takes eight for 15 and bowls out Australia for 60 at Trent Bridge in 2015. That's not the surface. That's bowling and catching because then England go on to be, what, three for 250 Something or whatever like that, it is yeah. they were by the end of the day. So it's it's not a matter that the surface was unplayable when fast bowlers bowled on it because clearly that was not the case. But it was it, it's contingent on the specific bowling from one particular... And I like that example. I think that's a fantastic comparison uh, between Trent Bridge 2015 and Chennai this week. And I'm not going to say that Trent Bridge was... I'm not going to... You know, I don't want to be positioned in saying, you're an Australian, you would say that. But that pitch was prepared in such a way that whoever bowled first was going to have a good time. But it did get 
better for batting progressively. It did flatten out. I'm not saying that it mm. was the best surface of all time. There was always something in it for the fast bowlers, which we enjoyed. I thought it was a, a real, a really entertaining two and a half days of test cricket, but it was set up that way. And as it happens, that was what Darren Lehman, if you recall, was actually asking for. Remember after the first test match at Cardiff, the criticism, and indeed at Lords for that matter, mm. the criticism was that there wasn't enough in those pitches early in the series and Edgbaston and Trent Bridge had plenty in them and by the time we get to the Oval, England have, have won the whole thing in the space of two weeks. But the reason I like the comparison is there's some links to the way in which England batted in their first innings at Trent Bridge in 2015 and the way that India were able to bat in their second innings yesterday. By that I mean, once you're so far ahead in the game and all that scoreboard pressure, one of the beautiful things about cricket is that it's not just played on turf, it's played above the shoulders. And the psychological effect of scoreboard pressure can be profound. And the fact that Rohit Sharma played so exquisitely in those conditions on the the first day making 161 meant that England were always going to be up against it, not just in terms of playing in very foreign conditions to what they're used to, which is fine, which is fine, hmm. but also that they were up against a, a tally of, what, what did they make in the first innings? 350 or something like that, which may as well have been 750 in terms of like how far hmm. um, behind they were likely to be if Ashwin got on one, which he quickly did. So yes, you've still got to bowl the team out, but I don't think it's inconsistent to say that this was a really interesting test match to watch so far, that occasionally seeing balls spin like mad on day one is fun, but also acknowledge the fact that this isn't something that we should necessarily be encouraging. I don't think that we want to see test matches end in, you know, this could have finished in two days. This probably should have finished in three days if Ashwin didn't bat so splendidly uh, yesterday. They probably would have been all out earlier and they would have had enough time to have bowled England out. I don't think it's something that we should be saying is a good thing, that pitches are set up in such a way that the probably ability of them reaching day four and day five uh, are diminished. Uh, and, and again, I don't mind. I think India should be entitled to do whatever the hell they want. But um, the ICC have these provisions in place for a reason because it is there to support pitches which go the test of time. So are you saying that the Trent Bridge pitch and the Chennai pitch are sort of comparable in terms of what they offered or, or not? Not really. I, I, I think like, that Trent Bridge got better. So I'm not saying that I think what I meant more is the psychological barrier there. You know, and England bowled so well that morning. They caught everything. Australia batted abysmally, it must be said as well. And I don't think anyone shies away from the fact that there was some horrendous shot selections shown that morning. It was a, it was a perfect storm. Teams sometimes get bowled out for 60. There was plenty of juice in it, but had Australia batted well, may very well have been that they were able to enjoy the best of the batting conditions later on day one and day two. The difference in Chennai was that the pitch was, wherever it started, it was only ever going to get worse. And that's why it's to the immense credit that Virat Kohli and Ashwin were able to dig themselves out of that hole yesterday because on the evidence of what we saw in the first hour and a bit on day three, that was as close to unplayable some of those deliveries were as close to unplayable as you're going to see. And then the way it looked to me was that in all of the innings, it, those bits where it was close to unplayable were early on when the ball was new and then it yep. got a lot easier if Definitely. you had the technique to get through the early period. And that's what Coley did, you know, just swallowed a lot of the bowling when it was really tough. I mean, his batting, his innings was being described as a masterclass when he had 18 runs, you know, but that was off about 70 balls and he'd just been absorbing all of the the more difficult end of the bowling. Yep. And as that ball got a bit older and softer, it got easier to bat. Now, the way I read it is that 
if England had batted better um, initially, early on in their innings, then they would have had that opportunity. And they kind of did for a little while where Ollie Pope and Ben Folks in their first innings were looking fairly comfortable and then, you know, Ollie Pope made a mistake and, and got himself out. So it seemed to me like England had the opportunity to bat longer and score bigger than they did. They just weren't good enough to do it. And, and it, so it, it really jarred that there were so many... England supporters and England pundits piling in on the surface and saying the wicket's not good enough to play on when the other team comes out and shows you exactly how to play on it and that it can be done and that you can score decent totals on it. You can make hundreds on it. You know, India's made two centuries on it during that test match. But it, it just didn't stack up. To It seemed like the same old complaining about going to India and finding a spitting surface as though anyone could possibly be surprised about that. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's and, and that's, and that's, and and that's definitely where the cricket hipster opinion is moving to, and that's fine. Like, I totally get that the extreme of this argument is that this is totally fine. Nothing to see here. Everyone was whinging and everyone should shut up because Ashwin made runs yesterday. I totally get that that's where this gets to on the far extreme. What I'm trying to find is a middle ground saying that we shouldn't deny the facts that this was done intentionally, and I think my personal view is that we shouldn't sort of skip over the idea that this is not something that should be like encouraged week to week because at the extreme end, and I've never seen a pitch quite like this before in watching Test Cricket. I mean, I, I mentioned Pune 2017, which was over in a, in a similar number of overs probably or thereabouts, three you know, days, three days, maybe something like that. I mean, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of many others like it. I wouldn't want to see a climate where um, this was like something that we were seeing time and time again, week in, week out, because that does feel like there's too much weight in favour of the coin falling your way. And obviously, getting the best of what will be a deteriorating situation. So, look, I, I feel as though this is fine. I have no real problem with it, fundamentally. I don't care that much. But the parochial side of it is what ultimately drove me insane. It was sort of one side of the argument and the other side of the argument, and we lose the ability to have a rational conversation about how we got to this place, and, and it simply becomes... I mean, you know, what you said there about, well, if England had a batted better, everything would have been fine and we wouldn't be necessarily having this conversation. Well, if India are all out for 120 yesterday, are we, are we then permitted to have the conversation, or is the scoreboard the determinant, or is what we're seeing with our own two eyes what governs it and seeing the way that Leach and Dan Lawrence and Moen Ali and Joe Root and all of the fantastic Indian spinners, the sort of movement they were generating and and not just the movement, but the way it was happening, it's the puffs of dust. Now that, hmm. you know, that on day four and day five, late day four, day five is magnificent to watch, adore it. But day one, day two, when that is the status quo, my sense is that you know, that doesn't give the best balance between bat and ball. But then again, nor does a road at Melbourne, nor does a road at Sydney. Not to yeah. say Melbourne wasn't good this year. Melbourne was outstanding. I'm more talking about 17, 18. But if that doesn't get players out, if that if that turn, you know, the puffs of dust, the, the turning square, whatever, you know, Dan Lawrence could do what he liked. He wasn't taking wickets. England didn't take wickets fast enough. It's not like they ran through a side. And so if if there's a proven method of being able to bat on the surface, then sort of ideologically, how is the surface a problem? That's the bit that I don't... Yeah, because you're saying that India made runs, therefore the argument's moot. I'm saying that what I'm seeing with my two eyes is that I don't care about the scoreboard. I'd be saying the same thing. Had England made 400 and India made 200, and I don't care. I don't have a dog in the fight. Hmm. I'm calling it as I see it. I've seen more test cricket than I care to know over the years. And what I saw on the first morning was emblematic of a pitch which has been set up that way, and that is totally fine. What happened afterwards, I don't mind. But on day one when the pitch was presented and what we saw in the first morning, it was 
always going to be that if you were able to uh, take advantage on the first day, which India did superbly, and England did not bowl well, and England did not bat well on the second day, and India bowled superbly, that's fine. But I don't really, I'm not really interested in the reductive argument that India made runs, therefore this is cool, good to go, do it again next week. I'm more of the view that over time it is better that surfaces are prepared where it's more likely that we're going to see five-day test cricket with the complexion changing over those five days rather than over-preparing it to a point where it's only going to go one way and it's only going to deteriorate and rapidly. One other question before we move it on. I remember the first day-night test that we watched in Adelaide, the pink ball test in 2015. Yep. Bloody great test match. We both enjoyed it thoroughly. Yep. That was over in three days. Both teams struggled to make 200. I think Australia just got over 200 in one innings and that was the highest score. It was very much ball dominates bat. I remember at the end of that match thinking, I think we talked about it at the time actually, that it didn't matter that that was a three-day test because it was a great test. There's nothing to necessarily say that a test match has to go for five days. No, not You can not have all. a great test match that goes for five days or you can have a really dull and shit test match that goes for five days. Absolutely. Or you can have a great test match that's over on the fourth day or even the third day. Is that something that gets lost in the idea that there is a problem if a pitch doesn't reach day five? No, that, that, that's not what I mean. I'm saying if the central case is that a pitch is going to have a test over in three days, if the most likely scenario is that it's going to be over quickly, mm. that's where I see an issue. If we're meant to be proponents of wanting to see test matches go deep into the fifth day as the best possible outcome, I'm not saying that a test can't be great in three days, not at all, and I don't want to be misconstrued as saying this. That Of course it can be, but um, that Adelaide situation in 2015 was an unusual one, and they said so afterwards. They It was the first pink ball test match. They wanted to give it as much protection as possible. They didn't know whether the ball would survive 80 overs. There was a lot of potluck going on there, and that is why that pitch was an outlier. And each year, subsequently, they have made it more and more in favour of batting in pink ball test matches at Adelaide based on, I suppose, the Until relative year, improvement. When they went the other way, left more grass on it, and it was very much ball dominant. Which, uh, I, which I'm sure, which, which I'm again. certain is governed by the fact that, well, I don't think it was the grass that bowled out India for 36. I'm copying a lot of that at the moment as well, saying that Australia doctored the pitch in Adelaide. Like the 36 all out was <laughs> not too dissimilar to the 60 all out at Trent Bridge. The 60 all out at Trent Bridge is more akin to what we what we saw at Adelaide before Christmas, where mm. just everything went right, and that can happen sometimes too. It's okay when one team dominates the other, playing brilliantly, as England did then, and as Australia did earlier this year. And you know what? If Australian curators wanted to produce five green tops, if that was the decision they made, look, I don't think it would work based on the drop in nature of these pitches these days. But if they wanted to have a crack at that, and they wanted to enhance their home ground advantage, and in the short term they won Test matches because of it. I think they're entitled to do so. I also think that the ICC have a role to play in overseeing that and making sure it doesn't get out of hand. So I think there's a there's a balance, there's a middle ground, and we're permitted to enjoy what's happened over the last three days, and we're permitted to relish uh, batting like Coley's, especially yesterday when it looked almost impossible to survive out there. That is that is brilliant. As Harsha Bogle said on Twitter, he will value that half century more than almost any of his 27 centuries due to the degree of difficulty. That is fine. But I think that, again, to repeat myself once one, one final time, it's about what are the price signals? What do we want to see week in, week out? I think this was interesting. I wouldn't want to see it every week. All right. We will not see lively tracks, I would wager, for Australia's T20 series in New Zealand. Uh, probably be five flatties up and down the country, <laughs> given that, what was it, 240 v 245 yes, at, um, at Eden, Eden Park, Park last yeah. time Australia went over there. And that's coming up. It begins uh, within the next week. Yep. Yeah.
I covered that series. I don't remember a lot about it other than that beautiful night in Auckland where, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, you're right, it's 240 against 240 and Martin Guptill made like a 42-ball century and they still lost or something like that um, thanks to... Aaron Finch and Glenn Maxwell, possibly. I don't know if I'm retrofitting that. Little Davey Warner. Little Davey Little Warner. Davey, yep. um, was captaining. He was, he he was. 50 off 25 balls, I reckon. That sounds about right to me. So, yeah, they'll start on the 22nd, which happens to be the day that I'm flying back to London, I think, from memory. But, yeah, I suppose a lot of the build-up chat, Jeff's actually not really been about New Zealand and Australia as much as it's been about the domestic cricket going on back in Australia, the Sheffield Shield and who might be eligible to play Sheffield Shield later in the summer. And it'd be remiss of us to uh, not um, quickly touch on uh, Glenn Maxwell, I suppose, in, in that in that context, given this is the Glenn Maxwell podcast a lot of the time, or has been over the years, mm-hmm. on account of the fact that he has been asked about this slab of cricket that he's playing in New Zealand for the white ball team. And, you know, I suppose that lamentation that he's only played 67 first-class games and, you know, he, he might get a chance to play the, the last two Shield games, but based on some comments he made during the Big Bash, maybe he won't. Maybe he won't be selected. And Chris Rogers pointed to this in his press conference uh, last week as well, saying they need to have a conversation and work through it, and he wants Maxi to be available, but it's all a bit unclear at the moment, but um, judging by what he said yesterday, Maxwell does want to play Test cricket again. There's no ambiguity around that point, and I suppose the only way he's going to get that chance is to play in the Sheffield Shield as and when. Uh, there's really no other way through. Well, it's just the the constant dilemma and, and the impossibility of being a fixture in the national white ball side in in both white ball teams, which almost always um, lay over the Sheffield Shield. It'll be the same at the end of this season. They'll be at the T Twenty World Cup while the early rounds of the Shield are happening, presumably. And so, you know, from a selectorial viewpoint, you either have to give that player the chance to make the red ball runs you want to see or you have to give them the latitude to say that that doesn't matter a bit like when uh, when England picked Adil Rashid in the test team when they decided they needed him um, despite the fact he hadn't been playing first class cricket uh, so you don't necessarily have to be playing the format it's not like you forget how to play cricket it's a matter of you know a mindset adjustment and, and a technical adjustment certainly and you know you'd you'd need the training time to get that right but I think maybe we sort of fetishise the idea of recent form. We seem to have this idea that cricketers forget how to play in about a week. You know, if they haven't had a hit in two weeks, you're like, how will he remember how to bat? You know, and then you see Ricky Ponting go back into the nets 10 years after retiring and, and start smoking them from ball one. And you're like, okay, you probably do remember how to bat. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's a kind of invented roadblock, a self-imposed obstacle that, oh, well, he hasn't played shield cricket, therefore can't be in contention. And and really it's more just that he's not in contention because whoever's running the show has decided that that's the case. You know, if they wanted him to be in contention, he would be. Yeah, there's a bit going on, isn't there? So there's the conversation we were having probably two years ago now about the extent to which he has missed out on opportunities to play Red Bull cricket. In more recent times, it's been just that schedule clash. He's playing, you know every possible white ball game for Australia, naturally, understandably. He's in the Indian Premier League. No one can begrudge him that, uh, given the the sorts of money that that is available over there. And most high-profile Australian players take up that opportunity on on a yearly basis. And then I think it's the idea that what you're touching on there, has he simply not 
been able to play enough red ball cricket. So 67 games across 10 years. It's 10 years this week since his first class debut, Glenn Maxwell. And I, I would hazard a guess that the majority of those games were played in the first five years of that decade. And the last five years, he's probably played, you know, maybe 20 all up at, at most uh, of red ball cricket between... Probably not uh, even that. Yeah, a handful I mean, in England um, and... Like, Seven of them are the test matches that he's played. Yep. Um, yeah, then there have been some in England, but that's but going me. back to sort of 2013-14 yep. when he was playing some first-class cricket for, for Yorkshire. And, yeah, in terms of racking up more than, you know, one or two Shield games a season, that would have been a, a very long time. Yeah, and it'll be the same this year. Let's say he gets back for one after quarantine and, and all the rest of it. It's a lot of pressure on your shoulders for one game of Red Bull cricket. I remember when he played one game at Lords two years ago for Lanks against Middlesex. And he took a FIFA, but he didn't make runs in either innings. And, mm. I mean, when the sample size is so small, uh, it, it does affect the numbers. Although, in saying that, he's still got very healthy first-class numbers taken as a whole, and we've talked about that at length in the past. So no point on revisiting that, but... Yeah, the idea of shifting gears from white to red or or whatever it is. I mean, Joss Butler's a good example of where England had a, a rethink on him. I interviewed him just before the 17-18 Ashes and he hadn't been picked in that squad. And he was really thinking about whether he'd be able to play any Red Bull cricket for England again. He had a similar problem. He was never really available to play county championship cricket. Thus, he wasn't able to mount a case with Red Bull form and, and so on. And then it, it took Ed Smith to become the chairman of selectors to say, well, you know what? This guy's a generational talent. He'll be good enough to adapt from white to red. We'll give him a sustained run in the, in the test team. And yeah, sure, that does mean to an extent getting your air miles up while you're playing test cricket, which isn't the best mm. possible preparation. You know, speaking to professional players, they do like to play a string of red ball games before playing a test match where they can, where it's at all possible. But they took the view that he was good enough to make that adaptation. And I suppose that's the call they'll have to make on Maxwell one way or the other. So far, they've landed on him being white ball only, but who knows, there might be a change in philosophy around 2022 when Australia play those string of uh, tours in the subcontinent and well, maybe in the UAE, maybe in Pakistan. I, I'm sure it'll be tempting for him to be um, ready to roll at a moment's notice to play in India, to play in Bangladesh where he's played before, to play you know, potentially in Sri Lanka where he hasn't played a test match, but you would imagine he's got a skill set which is uh, adaptable for those conditions and that will be you know, for him, he'll probably be frustrated by that to, to a certain extent because his view is that and when we interviewed him about it a couple of years ago, he thinks his best test cricket his best red ball cricket actually is in England and Australia, and he's yet to get a chance in either of those two countries. But um, around that, I suppose there'll be the perception that he's had a problem with the short ball uh, in white ball cricket in the last couple of years, and he'll need to uh, clear that hurdle in the minds of some uh, to, in order for him to get picked in, in more bouncy conditions. Yeah, look, I, I just think with, with the current uh, management, he's been tagged as not a test player and... We've seen this before that once uh, a, a selection group or a coach, you know, make up their minds about something, it doesn't really matter what the evidence is. If they wanted to pick him, they'd find a way to pick him, and, and it wouldn't matter. All of all of the justifications that we get for why players are or are not picked basically come down to whether or not those selectors wanted to pick them, you know, and, and the reasons are very often sort of just made up after the fact. It's whatever's most convenient yeah. to... to and, they, and, they could have, and they could have done that this year, right? They could have said at. in the middle of the India series when there was a degree of discombobulation in the Australian lineup, who's the most informed white ball player in the country? Probably Maxwell. I, I might be missing someone, but had such a fantastic series against India and started the Big Bash. Well, okay, well, let's get him in there. You know, proven performer, you know, and all the rest of it. But... 
um, or, or maybe not proven performer, but sort of someone who knows what it is to put the baggy green on, someone that knows the, the rhythms of Test cricket mm. and been in the first class system for a decade. But that was never really part of the chat. It was no one really talked about no. Maxwell. So yeah, again, this is probably well off Broadway that we're having the chat. But interesting that it's been intertwined with this New Zealand series at the moment because. If he wasn't playing over there, presumably he'd play five Shield games for Victoria in the space of five weeks. And who knows what might be possible if he did that. But, you know, can you really see Maxwell being afforded the chance as a nationally contracted player to say to the selectors, OK, nah, sorry, guys, I'm going to sit this tour out. I'm going to play for the Vicks instead. Mm. That's one easy way to lose your place in the pecking order in a World Cup year. Why would you do it? Yeah, and, you know, if again, if, if they wanted you to be an option for the test team, they might tell you to do that, but they don't. Yeah, you know, they're, yeah. they're quite happy for him to be doing the job that they think is the only job that he's able to do. So I, I think, you know, that's where it's stuck at the moment. I think it, it is a failure of imagination to be, you know, if you've got, you've got Matthew Wade being backed across two full home summers and without making a substantial score, you can't say that there's not, room for some uh, experimentation or, you know, just just trying something different in that middle order of the test team, you know, and, and that if that were someone who was definitely under the skin of the Indian team during that white ball series. Oh, yeah. Definitely he was in their heads. Rattled when, when he yeah. came out to bat. I think 2022, you know what? I, I genuinely believe this. I think they'll give him another chance, but I think it'll be... I think that they will give him that... Asia only. Yeah, I think they'll give him the opportunity there. I think they'll sort of say, when the time comes, he'll be in the tour party, much as he was in 2017 in India. He'll be there Mm. in the squad and he'll get a chance at some stage over there because they'll say that his game is compatible with those conditions. And look, if he can take that chance, maybe when he's 34 or 35, he can be a more consistent test player. That's probably the best possible spin at this stage because, yeah, with the current administration as it is, it's unlikely they'll do an about-face now, especially when there's his secondary point about the bad PR, I suppose, around the short ball. Whether that's true yeah. or not, by the way, or whether that's just a technical flaw that can be dealt with, I mean, I'm, I'm not qualified to comment on that really, but smart people seem to think it's nothing to do with his ability to play the short ball. It's that he prepares himself for white ball cricket and thus... You know, he's on the front foot. He's, he's, he's dancing around the crease, yeah. which means that if you get a sharp bumper, it can be where you, you're exposed. But anyway, that's, a, that's another conversation. I've seen him smoke a lot of short balls for six as well. Um, let's not forget that. The Absolutely. West Indies series win. Let's shuffle on to there. We talked at length last week about Kyle Mayers and the crazy innings and the fact that he had the best test average in the world, 250. (laughs) Well, it's a lot lower as of this week because he didn't make any runs in the second test, but others did. They batted big. They made 400 plus in the first innings again. It was uh, Nkrumah Bonner who made runs, who had that big partnership in the first test as well. Josh De Silva, the wicketkeeper we were talking about, Elzari Joseph made 82. They made 400 plus, got a 100 run lead, then fell over in their third innings, but had set Bangladesh 231 and managed to bowl them out 17 runs short. Cracker of a finish. Rakeem Cornwall, massive in that game, took five wickets in the first innings, four wickets in the second, a bunch of catches at slip and took the catch that sealed the game for them. And there's that amazing image that's been going around of it's Caven Hodge who's the substitute fielder and Jermaine Blackwood both of whom are tiny tiny little batsmen and they're both leaping on Rakeem Cornwall who's about seven foot two and you know probably total surface area about ten times that of the other two players and it's it is literally like little kids with dad but the you know the (laughs) elation of that 
that West, West Indies team with so many players missing going over to Bangladesh and winning in those conditions 2-0, um, it's, it's, it's a bit like the Sri Lanka 2-0 in South Africa in 2019. It's that sort of unexpectedness in terms of the, uh, the foreignness of the conditions and the relative weakness of the, the two teams. Yeah, we've been so fortunate in 2021 so far to have a number of test matches uh, finish where um, it's deep in the fourth innings and you don't know who's going to win and a number of results on, on the board. And this was another one of those. And the fact that the West Indies won in these circumstances, we touched on it last week, but so understaffed, missing so many players who elected not to make the trip to Bangladesh. I suppose what's not been reflected on is what, how disappointing this is for Bangladesh getting a, a two-test series at home against the West Indies and being in a, in a well, uh, almost impregnable position in the first of those and, and a pretty strong one in the second after bowling. Uh, the Windies out for 120-odd the second time around. They really should have uh, made that chase of 2-3-1, so they'll be very disappointed, especially given they are pretty much at full strength. So they're a bit off the pace, I suppose, compared to where they were at a couple of years ago when they won a test match against England at Chittagong and Australia at Dhaka. But yes, a triumph for the Windies. And as for that photo, I shared it um, as soon as I saw it and thankfully found the photographer's name as well, who I tagged in, because I reckon uh, he is going to be uh, the man who wins uh, the Wisdom MCC photo of the year for 2021. I know it's only February, but I'd be staggered if there's a better cricket photo than that, that moment of sheer joy uh, from the two West Indies fielders climbing all over Rakeem the Dream. It was something special. <laughs> and also, you know, I, I guess that Rakeem was able to play such a central role. He's, he's history's leading wicket-taker in tests against Afghanistan, I'll have you know, um, <laughs> the 10 wickets that he, that he took in the test against them. And then, you know, being so prominent bowling in the subcontinent to, to, to affirm his worth as a spinner, you know, purely as a spinner, he's he's that sort of player where, you know, because of his appearance, he's always got more attention and more sort of gags and like, um, you know, not been taken seriously, particularly as a cricketer, but to to be the kind of player they can rely on as a bowler in Asian conditions, you know, when you've, you've got five Asian test playing countries, that's that's a lot of potential tours. That's that's yep. a lot of um, potential cricket to be played in that part of the world, and to to have sort of established himself, to have reaffirmed his his ability in those conditions, I think is pretty important. Yeah, and he needed to do that after his tour of England last year, where things didn't go so well. So, um, well played, Rakeem Cornwall on the winning side again with nine wickets. Uh, Jeff Ireland have announced their home schedule for the Northern Summer. So they're playing six white ball games against South Africa uh, in July at Malahide and then six white ball games against Zimbabwe in August at Stormont and Breedy up in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, 12 fixtures for Ireland in the summer is a pretty good effort considering how choppy it's been, well, last year especially. And they've also got, ahead of that in June, the three one-dayers against the Dutch, probably in Amsterdam. They haven't announced that bit yet, but uh, I am hopeful that it's possible to get over there in June, COVID pending. But uh, um, great to see uh, Ireland, yeah, have 15 white ball games coming up in the space of three months that's fantastic news for them it's a shame there's no test match a part of the uh, a part of the thinking who knows uh, how that might play out I suppose my dream sequence would be that Australia make the world test championship final and they and they do their tune-up against Ireland instead of a county that would that might be too much to ask for but but still you know we can dare to dream that would be something pretty special um yeah the 
the Irish problem of it costing them half a million euros to stage a test match, you know, after all the, the money they've lost over the COVID period probably writes that off. But, you know, that's where the ICC Test Cricket Fund would come in. Very handy, wouldn't it, from all those countries who do actually have some money. And they just had a big fish as well. They just had like a big country to go and play a test in Ireland, I reckon. It's like if Australia went there, again, hypothetically, whenever it is, they will get more money for broadcast rights for that week. They, they will get more advertising dollars. Mm. That You know, it'll... It'll help sustain them in the medium term. But anyway, it's unlikely in, in this particular summer, but it's something we should keep forcing towards. Well, when Cricket Australia schedule their first test against Ireland in 2035 um, and their second <laughs> test against Ireland in 2052, we'll be, we'll we'll be, be there. there with bells on, don't <laughs> doubt it. And the three one days in the Netherlands, that's another particularly good uh, result. It doesn't matter what happens on the field, someone's going to score 420 that week. That's all I'm saying. Hey, it could be a final word road trip. Time will tell. Hey, Jeff, uh, before we get to our feature interview, time for a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! That's Nerd Pledge. That's the game that we play with the people on our Patreon page where they try to confuse us by sending us a number. What they do is they send us, they support the show by sending a number of, of a currency number, uh, a few dollars and cents, pounds and pence, whatever it might be. And that number relates to cricket. And we have to guess what that number is. The first of them comes in from Joel Emmonson, who confused me here because Joel initially sent in $1.77 and sent in a clue saying, this is a combination of two numbers. Don't overthink the combination. And then later he sent a message saying, scrap that. I want to change my number to 112 (laughs) with the clue better than Bannerman. So look, if you, I'll, I'll give this one to the crowd. If you want to look at 177, 177 is a combination of two numbers. Don't overthink the combination. Have a look. Let us know. Send us a tweet or an email or something if you reckon you've got that. As for the other one, better than Bannerman for 112. What this says to me immediately, Adam, is that I reckon it's Andy Gantome, the West Indies batsman who played one test match, had one innings, made 112, never played test cricket again. And thus, for a long time, until Curtis Patterson took that spot recently and may yet drop down... If he gets another shot at Test cricket, Andy Gantone was the only cricketer to average better than Don Bradman. So my rationale is that if Joel's clue is better than Bannerman, that being the Charles Bannerman record that's the longest standing in Test cricket from 1877 for the highest percentage of runs in an innings, better than Bannerman, if there's a stat that you're going to beat that is better than the Bannerman record. There wouldn't be much, but maybe the only one would be beating Don Bradman's batting average. That is my rationale <laughs> that one twelve Andy Gantome, Bradman. But, Joel, the thing is, if that's not right, you just drop us a message in the patron DMs and you nudge us further towards the correct answer and we'll come back to it on story time on the weekend because that's what we do when we don't get the numbers right. Go on, Joel. Slide into our DMs. We can't wait. Uh, next up, Jeff, for new numbers, we've got one from Stuart Ackers. He sent through a pledge of 504. Now, there are a few options here, but I thought I would go to a theme that we've revisited on story time a number of times where I like it when something doesn't happen for a very, very long time then happens a couple of times in mm. quick succession. That's the case for the bowling figures of five for four. All the way through the years we played international cricket, five for four was Mm -hmm. never taken in any international game until 2019. Remember, they've been doing this since 1877. No one's ever taken five for four. But 
in 2019, it happened. And then five months later, in early 2020, it happened again uh, via an Argentine and a Malaysian for good measure when they opened up the T20 internationals to a broader group of countries uh, in 2019. So of October that year, Pedro Arigi defending just 105 for Argentina at Lima against their traditional rival Brazil in the South American Championships. He took five for four with his right arm medium pace and the Argies held on by 29 runs. So that's the first time we've had five for four. That name again, Pedro Arigi. That's at least how I'm going to pronounce it. Maybe you'll correct me, Jeff, given you've lived in Spain and you've lived in Argentina. I would go with, because with, it's a double R, you've got to get your tongue rolls out. I would go Pedro Arrighi. Arrighi. You know, Arrighi. me being a pretentious dick. Let us know, Pedro. Send us a message on the DMs. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash the final word, Pedro. Get yourself a nerd pledge. Uh, and second up, uh, Malaysia were hosting Hong Kong on a T20 tour in February 2020, just before COVID, actually. They had 120 to play with. And uh, Kaiser Hyatt, I'm going to go with the pronunciation there, bowling his right arm off breaks took five for four in just two overs and Malaysia held on by 21 runs on the Duckworth Lewis Stern system so yes an Argentine and a Malaysian the only two men to take five for four in international cricket Jeff there we go I like it five for four is what we will go with for Stuart Akers Uh, let us know Stuart if you were not thinking of the Argentine and Malaysian uh, figures that uh, I think this must have been just after all T20 international games were granted T20i status and, and joined the stats and suddenly more exotic stats were a little bit more possible. And our last number comes in from Rituraj. The number is $1.83, and there was a clue with this one. You don't have to send a clue. Uh, You can if you want. Looking at the last 20 years, said Rituraj, it seems you need to have this number in your stats page in order to become a long-term captain of a team. Well, captains and 183. If you have a look at, for instance, the career of Virat Kohli, it's interesting that his highest one-day international score and also his highest list A score, so he's never done better in domestic uh, 50-over cricket either, is 183. If you look at Mahendra Singh Dhoni, his highest ODI score and his highest list A score is 183. And if you look at Surav Ganguly, his highest ODI score and list A score is 183. So the most prolific, uh, the Indian captains of this century have that 183 link. The other thing I found interesting is it appears nowhere else at all for any of the other prolific captains of the 20th century from other countries. <laughs> like 183, 18.3, 1.83, nothing. I, I was looking in granular detail. The best I could find was that Michael Vaughan and Andrew Strauss had T20 international batting averages of 18.7 and 18.2 respectively, which are not 18.3, but they're also pretty bad. So I thought that was funny. Joe Root before the current test match had batted 183 times in test matches, but that wasn't the case when the pledge came in. And the only thing I did find was Faf de Plessis, 16th uh, for the most tests captained in the 21st century, has a T20 bowling average, including domestic T20s, of 18.3. Very good. He has 50 wickets in that format. And then internationally for South Africa, he's bowled eight balls. Eight deliveries for a guy who's got 50 wickets at domestic level at 18. Well, remember when he debuted for South Africa all those years ago at Adelaide Oval? The reason he was picked 
not just for his batting, because he was a second spin option oh. with, his, with his leg breaks. That was the... the I mean, I, I, I can't remember who he replaced in the 11, but it was like, well, here's this guy with an unusual background. He's played loads of first-class cricket in England. He's got an unusual name as well. Um, I think he was... Was he 28 or 29? Something like that when he made his debut. And yeah, it wasn't just about his batting, of course. Extraordinary ton in the fourth innings on debut. But the bowling as well. So I think there's, there is there is some context there. There is some backstory. Wow. That is, in that way, it's weirdly like Steve Smith. You may not know this, but Steve Smith was originally picked in the Australian <laughs> test team as a spin bowler down the order. And, and then the really? batting came later. Isn't that a remarkable little fact? That is, um, yeah, well, but, but Faf doesn't like to bowl. Since he became captain, doesn't want to bowl because in one day as in first class cricket, whatever it is, domestically... He's bowled 930 overs across formats for 145 wickets. And then internationally, he's bowled 46 overs and taken two wickets in all formats. Doesn't like to bowl in, for South Africa. Will bowl domestically. Sort it out, Faf. Roll the arm over. And I reckon it anyway, would be a similar breakdown in terms of the number of overs that Stephen Smith bowled as captain compared to what he bowled in domestic cricket before getting the chance. So another parallel there between the men. Yeah, it's weird that Steve Smith actually started as a bowler. That's just, that's just a crazy <laughs> little factoid. Um, one eight three for Ritaraj. If you'd like to send us a nerd pledge, very easy. Go to patron.com slash the final word. Patron is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can write to them and ask why. And I should say that story time last week might have got a little bit lost in the feed, given all the daily apps that were going up, but it was particularly good. Jeff did some extraordinary homework there to tell some great tales. So go back in the feed and hear what we did on story time 34, and there'll be story time 35 this week and so on. It will go patron.com forward slash the final word. Jeff, let's take a brief break, and afterwards we'll be talking to Ange Pippos about her documentary, The Record. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Zolio! It's a piece of satellite technology. You can strap it to your belt buckle. You can stick it in your top pocket if that's still the fashion. And you can get it as part of your relationship with The Final Word, Jeff. I reckon you could wear it on your wrist. I reckon you could get one of those sort of elastic bands that joggers use to put their phones in or something and you could just pop your Zolio in that. Like a slap uh, band. Have you ever wanted... Yeah, slap band, maybe attach it to a scrunchie, you know. <laughs> there are ways to wear a Zolio With a slinky to, to, to and a yo-yo. style. Yeah. Oh, this is getting good. Maybe maybe engage it in a game of marbles somehow. <laughs> or flick some um, footy cards against each other. <laughs> if, if you've wanted to be able to turn your ordinary phone into a satellite phone cheaply and efficiently, you can do it with this magic box. It's not for phone calls, but it is for messages and emails. And what it'll do is connect you to the worldwide satellite network. So whenever you're somewhere with no reception, you know, you might be an adventurous person, you might be out at sea, you might be on a mountain, uh, or you might just uh, live in one of those suburbs that isn't adequately served by 5G towers that are trying to give us all coronavirus. Uh, or you might just have one of those houses where there are just there's a weird room where there's no reception. You ever live in one of those places where it's just like you can't get phone reception in the laundry? No reason that anyone could tell, but you just can't. What you can do is get a Zolio, which is a little box that connects you to the global satellite network. And then you can text or email anywhere on the planet from anywhere on the planet. It's that good. It's very easy. It's a little app on your phone. It's, uh, It's economical. It's affordable. And it is available at zolio.com, Z-O-L-E-O dot C-O-M. 
That's how you spell Zolio.com. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we're just really thrilled to have with us uh, on the show today for a conversation about her new documentary charting the T20 World Cup of 2020, Ange Pippos. Ange, congratulations on this fine piece of work. You must be relieved that you've got it out the door after what must have been such a challenging last 12 months. <laughs> so challenging, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, where do I start? It was a really difficult process It's difficult enough making a film when you're not in lockdown, right? But when you are in lockdown and you've got three women working from three different locations trying to piece together a script and a film, it is very challenging. But we got there, you're right. And I think my overriding feeling is relief because there were times throughout the process when I really thought we might not make it. You know, the the final itself, as you know, made it really by a matter of days. If it had been the following weekend, there may not have been a crowd at all. So we just snuck in with the final. But that wasn't the end of the drama. Then we had to go away and make it. And players went into lockdown and hubs and all sorts of things. So we didn't even get to finish the filming that we wanted to complete. We had signature moments that we wanted to film with our key players that we couldn't get access to them. Mm, mm. So in the end, thankfully, we shot the shit out of the tournament and Mm. we used everything we had and we were able to script it with what we already had. When did you decide that this was going to be a project that you would undertake? Of course, you have a long history in broadcast journalism. You've been making all sorts of projects over the last 10 years or so. But when? how did the idea start and when was it decided upon that you'd be spearheading it? I was watching The Men's Ashes 2019 and like so many other people, I was gripped by what I was watching. And I I guess I just thought uh, the whole idea of breaking or attempting to break a world record for attendance at a women's sporting event was just so enticing for me. It just ticked every box. So, yes, I love sport and everyone knows about that and I love cricket, but I've also become a voice for equality in sport and for levelling the sporting field and for making it inclusive and giving women and girls the, the pathways and opportunities they deserve. So this really spoke to me on the equality mm. side of it, like this I'd seen lots of changes in sport. I'm not denying there's been change, incremental change for women and girls, but this idea was a game changer. Mm. This was going, right, we are cricket and we're going to have a crack at this. It was bold and exciting and brave and all of that. So in July 2019, my sister in docos, Nicole Minchin and I, got together and started really talking about it seriously. Like, how can we make it work? And we had great ideas. We spoke to Belinda Clark first. BC answered her phone, which was good. (laughs) And she got me on to other people at Cricket Australia, Richard Ostroff, um, who's from the broadcast side of things, as you know, and Nick Hockley, who was then with the uh, T20 World Cup side of it. And we sat down and started to nut it out. And... 
you know, sadly, Nicole and I are not independently wealthy women. So we had to then finance the thing and, and start to <laughs> pitch for money, <laughs> which is a doco experience. You go around and you tell people, I've got a great idea. You really need to invest in this. And whenever I talked about the plan to break the world record for attendance, everyone I spoke to said, yeah, Ange, it sounds great, but what if Australia doesn't make the final? Where will that leave your project? So I had to muster my own bravado and just say, they're going to make it. They're the world's best team. They'll breeze on through to the final and then we'll have a serious tilt at this record. And as you know, it was um, it was hardly a breeze for them. So, yeah, the whole lot of meetings and all that stuff, you know, just to get the finance plan in order. Cricket Australia was in our corner from the start. They were terrific. But we needed, uh, we needed more money. So we went to the MCC, we went to the state government, visit Victoria and got together enough to get started on it. That's what I was most curious about, Ange, is that the way that the documentary unfolds, there's a gripping narrative really around the Australian team because they lose their first game, they're on the edge throughout of being knocked out, they almost don't make it through the semi-finals uh, due to rain and all the rest of it. It's a hard road to get there, but you had no idea that it was going to be that interesting. You know, it could have been Australia just strolling into the final as per usual. It could have been Australia being knocked out. What sort of shape did you... Like, because obviously the shape the doco ends up in now is the one that relies on what panned out through the tournament. But what did you think it might look like and what were your plans for how it might look had that tournament unfolded differently, either much more simply or with Australia not making it? Certainly could, have, could not have scripted what we saw. I thought Australia would get through and there might be a few bumps along the way, but I certainly didn't see that amount of drama coming. And all sports docos need drama. So we were, we were gifted that. Mm. And it makes for a much more compelling series. You're absolutely right. I didn't expect India to arrive with that swagger and with, with the talent. I mean, I guess I followed Australian cricket pretty closely, but I, I uh, certainly wasn't aware of Punang Yadav's beguiling spin. And that night, as stressful as it was, I said to the team, this could work out in our favour. This is giving us the bumpy start. Mm. We'll be fine after this. You know, India is the toughest team in, in our group we should be able to get this back on track. And, it, hey, it gives us this compelling start to the film. <laughs> and then enter Sri Lanka. <laughs> like, oh. what? <laughs> I've got to say, I mean, that, that's when you, when you think about that tournament, and obviously Jeff and I covered it pretty closely for the various publications that we were working for. When Australia are three for ten, forget about the, the other context around that game. And, look, that's captured really nicely. I remember talking to Beth Mooney about this not long after the final, and, and she gave a similar response to me that she gave to you. She thought she, in her words, fucked the whole thing up for the team. And the fact that yeah. the players were willing to be so upfront with you with a camera rolling, I mean, it's one thing to say it into a dictaphone when you when it's a print interview, but, I mean, it felt as though you had subjects there who were willing to give a fair bit of themselves to you. Absolutely. I felt sick at the whacker. I mean, I, at three for ten, I, 
I just had to remove myself from where I was sitting. And I do this a bit when I'm a fan watching the Adelaide Crows in a tight <laughs> contest. The same kind of thing happens. I just end up doing this. I just have to walk away <laughs> and come, come back. <laughs> and so there I am in the front row of the media box. And I'm surrounded by journos who are not doing a documentary, right? They're writing a, a match report, essentially. Mm-hmm. So they haven't got their livelihood riding on the outcome of the match like we have. So I remember just ducking away and having some quiet time just to process what was going on and how would I resuscitate the project if Australia loses? Because I was worried about our investors and, and, you know, there's all of that stuff that you have to sort of, you know, consider I thought the project would go up in smoke. I was so concerned about would I would we be able to finish it because it's based around Australia sure. and Australia's performance. It's almost analogous for women's cricket as a whole, isn't it? That if there's a slip up on the field, the whole thing could go belly up. And uh, as far as the financials for you were concerned, uh, you know, they needed to keep winning for you. They did. And we had so much emotional energy invested in this project. But back to your question, whenever someone says three for 10, it's sort of, it is very triggering for me, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) But I, um, oh, the, the women were great in the interviews. They really were. They were done pretty much two days after the win. Oh, that's interesting. It was straight after. So you, you actually captured all that footage, the interview footage, you know, right in the aftermath. They hadn't really had time to necessarily process all that had gone before them in the previous month. That's right. That's right. And so there was talk about COVID and, you know, it was all starting to happen and we just wanted to get the interviews done with, uh, with the Australian players and just have them, you know, ready to go. But we asked them to wear casual clothes for a reason. You know, we wanted to see the woman first and her personality before the cricketer because we've got so many great shots of them being heroic in their Australian uniform on the field. It was important for us to get to know the real woman beneath the uniform and so thankfully they they were happy to do that. And then, yes, we did the interviews and, God, I loved chatting to them. And Beth Mooney was a surprise because I didn't know much about Beth. I'd interviewed Meg Lanning countless times Mm. and Elise Perry and and others, but Beth was a last-minute decision for us. We decided we weren't going to interview her, but her performance during the tournament meant that we we had to change our thinking there with Beth. And when she sat down and in her laconic way just let it rip... (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I knew we had some good material and she gave us a good insight into her character. You know, I'm just boring Beth. I'm just a shit kicker from Harvey Bay and some really classic lines and, yeah, we we love Beth. There's a parallel in that you have so much riding on the Australian team's results but so do the organisers of this competition and, and that's something that you set up from the outset really with the interviews with with Nick Hockley um, and Stuart Fox who runs the MCC that they have this bid, they want to get this record crowd in but 
implicitly, inherently, it depends on Australia making the final. Australia have to win through to the final. And so, and that's something we were writing about quite a bit at the time, that there is this inherent pressure on the home team that you have to make it, you have to be good enough to qualify. And you get into that with Elisa Healy, particularly, um, and her press conferences saying, there's no more pressure on us than usual, which at the time we were all saying, that is bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. And then Elisa Healy comes out and says, yeah, that was absolute bullshit. <laughs> um, it's, it's a fairly extreme position to put a sporting team in ahead of the thing. Not just that we want you to win it as normal, but we want it to win it forever. Yeah, and look, kudos for them for sticking to the, <laughs> sticking to their own script when all of us around them knew that they were bullshitting, that clearly there was an extra layer of pressure on them. They were getting it from everyone and they couldn't say, they couldn't say that they were feeling it. They had to present as, you know, we are happy to be the home side, we are going to embrace all of that and, you know, the, the word embrace must have been used about 50,000 times by all the players. They were embracing it. But having stayed in the same hotel as the team, uh, crisscrossing the country, I can tell you that around the breakfast buffet, their faces told me that they were under pressure. Mm. You know, I knew, it was very clear, I knew when I could and could not approach those players. And I, we respected that. And that's part of documentary filmmaking is you want to be there and you want to get great material and capture it all, but you also have to respect the players. And... Um, that morning in Perth after the win against Sri Lanka, I saw Meg at the muesli section around the buffet and I went up to her and I said, I told you I wanted drama, but seriously, I didn't mean the three for ten because it just created so much angst, anxiety. And she said, yeah, that's probably a bit too much, but perhaps I should have had more faith in Meg and Rachel to dig Australia out of that hole. But it's it's been interesting to hear the players talk about the documentary now, and they're saying that they didn't really know that we were there a lot of the time, that they thanked us for sort of being there but not being in their face mm. because I know that, you know, they'd done another documentary before that and there, and there were some problems with encroaching you know, too close. Yeah, it was good to hear that they didn't really feel like we were too close to them and that's the beauty of good lenses, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's sort of stepping back from the team itself. I thought uh, that opening stanza was quite interesting hearing Nick Hockley talk about the idea that, I mean, he's not from Australia, of course, but he works in Melbourne and saying that when people go to the MCG and show people around, it's like they're showing them around their own home. And I feel that way. Whenever I bring a new person to the G from abroad, I feel very, very proud of it. And then Belinda Clark following that by saying, for all of that, homeliness it's not been a place for women historically now you could build the case that it has been 1956 olympics of course but in modern times it's principally been a place where men do things and men set records and, and men win grand finals and win test matches and, and all the rest of it so there was that importance of it not just about setting the record but that very special uh amphitheater if you like being a home for women too indeed and that it, the major theme for me is about women belonging on the biggest stage. Yeah. And it doesn't matter 
what it is, whether it's sport or any other sector of society, women deserve those same opportunities and pathways. And when we were planning to shoot this, Nicole mentioned my co-producer and director, plucked out a really handy reference and it's been in my head the whole way through and it is Megan Rapinoe. It's the Megan Rapinoe stance is about taking up space. <laughs> you know, women should be able to take up space and it was an image that we carried with us throughout the whole thing. And in the final, Elisa Healy, she is taking up space. She is having the time of her life and she just belongs on that stage. And so that was a really important theme for us is, yep, it was a World Cup and it was about sport and it was about hitting sixes and, you know, death knell bowling and all of that stuff that you talk about in T20 but it was more about belonging on the bigger stage and investing in women. It's no longer good enough to just rely upon lazy knee-jerk responses of, oh, there's not enough interest in women's sport. Mm, I don't know. They're not strong enough. They're not fast enough. They're not entertaining enough. All of these excuses that we've heard from people at the top of sport, at the top of TV networks, you know what? That's wrong. Invest. Build it and they will come. And cricket has done a great service for all sport here. To, you know, it can be achieved, but you've got to do it properly. And, you know, Nick Hockley and others made sure that it was promoted the right way and that women's sport was celebrated in its own right. You know, lazy comparisons to men's sport, forget it. We've moved on. Society's evolving, thankfully, finally. And it was a wonderful showcase, wasn't it? That moment you're mentioning in the final with, you know, you spend quite a, a few close-ups in the documentary of Elisa Healy's reactions to what she's doing, you know, after she's hitting sixes over cover, after shots that she's played and the delight on her face. And it seems like it's the confluence of building two things. It's building her skills and abilities over the previous two or three years and just how much better she got over that period of time and then building the stage on which she's able to show those off and then this bit of perfect timing that the two of them come together at exactly the right time. They peak at the right time and Australia's shakier showings from earlier in the tournament aren't there at all and this is, you know, their absolute best when everybody's watching, you know, when when the stage has been set up and when they are able to take up the space on that stage. What a finale. I mean, I just... Uh... I loved it. I loved I couldn't get enough of her batting that night. But she also says in the film that she felt like India had had everything its own way throughout the tournament, not travelling as far and as wide as Australia. And I can probably say that she was, that was driving her as well. It was this feeling of they'd had the rub of the green and, you know, we had to travel to Perth and here, there and everywhere. And so she, she was sort of, she had so much fuel and she just wanted to show, yes, she's a great batter, but that Australia on its day is just capable of doing this. And this is the Australia that I had in my head at the start of the tournament, that they would do this 
to the teams, but they really, they didn't. And how much of that was the pressure that we spoke about before? I mean, it's it's hard to say. Um, you know, they had to call an emergency batters meeting after that second group game <laughs> to try and work out what is going on here, just the batters. And Megan Shute told us, you know, she was, she was a bit pissed off. She felt like the bowlers were doing their thing well and the batters were letting down the side. So they had that meeting at the team hotel, which we were not allowed to attend. Interesting. <laughs> Access was good, but we, there were times when it was fairly clear that we were not allowed behind those doors. <laughs> yeah, just on, on that Healy final performance and the way you managed to capture that, that actually reminded me a little bit of Brad Haddon in the 2015 World Cup at the MCG, unapologetic for the, I mean, almost leaning into the ugly Aussie narrative that some Australian teams shy away from, but Healy clearly doesn't care. She wants people to be intimidated by her. She feels it's how it gets the best out of her. So again, you can debate the merits of it, but it was clear to her that she wanted to get stuck into them verbally as well. She wanted to laugh at them almost when things weren't going well for India. And I found that really interesting. And on the other side of the equation, that vulnerability they showed after the second game to get together. And I think Beth Mooney captures this pretty well when she says that they don't always or haven't always been able to share how they're feeling as individuals uh, when things aren't going well as a batting group. That had strong links back to the 2017 loss in the semi-final against England in the 50-over World Cup and indeed 2016 in the Caribbean, talking to Megan Shute um, when they were building up towards the 2018 World Cup. She said a major part of the transformation of this team was their willingness to share their vulnerability with each other. And it sounds like that's where they got to at the Wacker against Sri Lanka. It just took them a couple of weeks because there was this extraordinary focus on making the final. That's all they had the space for almost. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And then back to Healy in the final, she was sledged as she, as she got, when she got out, she was sledged by the bowler. And what is really interesting is you, you see in the film, she goes back to the dugout and she shares that with the players mm. and they have a bit of a laugh. But when I tell that story to other women, women in sport and friends of mine who don't get into sport, they bristle. It's really interesting that there is still this expectation that women shouldn't be doing that, shouldn't be sledging each other on the sporting field. Yeah. I mean, I I, I kind of liked it. I thought (laughs) it was okay with what happened. But it is an interesting thing that, you know, it's seen by some as it is an it's an ugly part of sport. But if it doesn't cross the line, you know, do you think it's okay? I think it's okay. And you talk about solidarity. I mean, it, it crosses borders in different ways. Sue and Healy's in the middle of the next story where she's texting Danae Van Niekirk, the captain of South Africa, when they think their World Cup semi is going to be washed out and as a consequence, South Africa will progress having been the higher qualified side, but congratulating them on their achievement. And so, I mean, they've played a lot of cricket together at the Sydney Sixers. So there is that collegiality. I'm not sort of saying there isn't that. It's different to men's cricket sometimes in that respect. But yeah, it, it does uh, paint that image that there are some very close friendships off the field crossing uh, national borders. That's a nice story, that one. I, I enjoyed listening to Elisa tell us that story because it does show that they've got good friendships stemming a lot from playing together in, in WBBL and just by being decent human beings, I suppose. But, yeah, she, um, like everybody else in Sydney <laughs> on that particular day, yeah. didn't really think that match was going to go ahead, except 
Lisa Spilaker, this is interesting. I was talking to her the other day and we were reliving the Sydney weather show and she said she she was certain that they were going to get a game away and that we people like me needed to talk to some Sydney siders <laughs> about the weather, about the weather patterns in Sydney <laughs> instead of Mel Farrell and Laura Jolly and myself in the media box together stressing about the end of Australia's campaign, Lisa was saying, no, 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 it was all good. I wish I'd known that. <laughs> it would have made it a bit more enjoyable. You probably didn't anticipate that about 30 minutes of your documentary would just be shooting rain around Sydney, but the, the shots that you've got on the day, they underline just how relentless that it was through that day because I was up there as well. And I think, you know, sitting upstairs, you're watching the field and the covers and, and just kind of chewing your nails a bit and just be, being a bit more sort of bored or, or kind of preemptively disappointed than anything else, just going like, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, are they actually going to get a game on here? But not being aware of the absolute turmoil that was going on in the dressing rooms because, you know, we only saw the bits where they came out, out onto the field. And there were the things I noted that you picked up on in the show as well with, like, the Australians coming out to start warming up while it was still raining as if to say, like, you know, it's not really raining. It's kind of the old crowd pantomime where, where you know, the English fans put their umbrellas up and then the Australian fans take their shirts off and start sunbaking. But it was the Australian <laughs> team doing it, trying to just psych everybody out. They were in absolute distress, really, about the prospect of, of being washed out, and that's what you managed to capture in that part of the documentary. And Matthew Mott roaming around with the rule book, <laughs> going up to anybody who was prepared to listen to him and trying to convince them that it's okay to start in a, you know, in a little bit of light mist. I mean, it was a supernatural weather event. I will never really understand how that happened how it managed to stop so there could be a reduced overs match. And then it started again, you know, towards the end of the match, it started to rain again. It was just this window that it has to have been divine. I mean, it had, there has to have been some greater force at play here. I and mean, being Greek, I'm always looking for any sort of divine intervention. But there was something going on and Meg says it in the film, you know, somebody was looking up over us that night. Or it might have just been the weather doing what weather does. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I think for me that's the moment of the tournament and I, I sat in front of the dugout and I couldn't hold back my tears after that win because I had a lot riding on it, you know. Forget about the stress the players were under. <laughs> what about us as filmmakers? We knew that we were going to a final and... We had the dream final because it wasn't just Australia, it was India as well, and that was going to draw the biggest crowd possible. So I just had tears of relief that somehow, you know, amongst all of that chaotic weather, Australia got through. So you get to the Melbourne Cricket Ground on International Women's Day, and, and that's, again, brought in really nicely, the, the images from the morning and the administrators talking about tickets selling one after another, following it on their phone apps and, and all the rest. And by the time that Katy Perry takes the field and the players are literally dancing 
<laughs> alongside, on, on, next to the dugout. And Matt Mott makes the point that, uh, you know, you'd never see that, uh, I suppose, in men's cricket. But um, there's this idea they needed to embrace the moment rather than sort of resolve from it. And I think that felt to me watching it like that was the distinction. You go back to that first game against India, the first group game, and there's so much pressure. They're not talking about it. They're not externalising it. But internally clearly it was all about the final yet they had so far to go to reach that point and it was just too much for them initially but by this stage they're able to truly embrace it and I love the comment I think from Belinda Clark in the doco where she notes that it wasn't just for that generation of players but kind of everybody who'd come before them who'd had just as much passion uh, for playing for Australia, committed just as much as far as their their personal life to achieving that objective, but never got recognised, never got remunerated properly. Uh, and there they all were. It was like this massive high school reunion with all of these members of the women's cricket fraternity, for want of a better word, all there as one watching uh, this extraordinary game play out in front of them. It was such a powerful moment. And I was surrounded by the pioneers of women's cricket and... Uh, and Steph Beltrami from Cricket Australia was near me. And it was incredibly moving to, to be there watching that crowd build. And I just felt, I felt vindicated. I felt um, overcome with emotion because, you know, I've spent 20 plus years talking about equality in sport and what can be achieved if the will is there to do something about it. So to see the crowds pour in, it was just a beautiful moment. For me, it will be really hard to top that. I mean, I hope there will be other occasions that are like that, but it just felt just truly magnificent to be surrounded by so many people watching women's sport. And the pioneers, you're right, you know, they, they played cricket when it wasn't encouraged for, you know, women to play this great game. And they kept on playing. And I thought about, you know, I thought about all the, the roadblocks that have been put in the, in the way of women who wanted to make become their sporting best. I thought about Betty Wilson on that night and, you know, mm. all these fantastic women who stared convention in the face and said, no, I will play this sport. I'm sorry, I can't marry you because I want to represent my country and I want to mm. go and play in England. And if I marry you, that's it. We'll have children and I won't be able to play cricket. And there was no, you know, you couldn't do both. It's still hard to do both for women today to be an elite athlete and a mother. And there was Betty Wilson in the 50s faced with that. So, I mean, I've had a, a great career covering sport and that is right up there at the top. It was just incredibly moving. And um, I'm just really delighted that, we were able to document it. It was too big a story to ignore for us as filmmakers who are passionate about equality. And it now will live on in the National Sound and Film Archives. It'll be hopefully taught in schools and used as a school resource as well. And it'll help bring the change that's needed in sport and society. So that's, that's cool. I remember on the day when the final crowd numbers came through, it was 86,000 plus and like, it felt like such a triumph just being there and having the MCG full, you know, feeling that, that particular feeling of a full MCG that really can't be replicated almost anywhere else. And, you know, the, the record they were shooting for was 90,500 and there were 5,000 odd tickets that were sold to people who didn't, 
show, you know, possibly some of them due to early COVID anxiety and that sort of thing. And there are always a, a, a couple of thousand, you know, tickets to get distributed where people don't turn up normally anyway. But it felt at that moment that the actual number didn't matter because what had happened was the success had taken place. The, the full house, you know, it was full enough <laughs> to feel full and, and that was really all that mattered and that the crowd figure was just a way to drive that. And so it was interesting that a project that was set up for you as, you know, it's called The Record, it starts with that framing of we want to beat this record. And by the end of it, the record's pretty much irrelevant and, and I think Nick Hockley even says that expressly that, you know, he couldn't have cared less about it being a couple of thousand one way or another. The point was that the crowd had come, whatever the number of it was. It, it was it was proper enough uh, and it was a full enough house and it felt right. It felt like a full MCG. That's right. Nick Hockley says it and the players say it as well and, and not all of those um, comments made the, the final cut. But they all said the same thing, that it, it didn't matter. It achieved what it set out to achieve. It was, it was a full crowd and falling four or 5,000 short didn't matter. And I mostly agree with that. <laughs> but I've got to say, and I can't help who I am, I'm a competitive woman. And I look, I would have loved to have taken that record off the Americans I would love to have had the world record here at the MCG and Nicole and I have lively debates about this and the other night after the launch we went out and out and out and out into the wee hours of the morning and we were still debating the number and she said, how can you be just that tiny bit disappointed? I don't know, I just, I just can't help it. I'm a little bit disappointed. But I take, I understand everyone saying that, and I agree that it really doesn't matter in terms of moving women's sport ahead and in changing attitudes and levelling the landscape and all of that. But I'm just a competitive beast. Would have been good to get one more. And fair enough too, and I love that about you. But uh, look, the, the and that is the sad postscript, isn't it really? And you put it in text at the bottom of the screen that had it been one week later, there wouldn't have been any crowd in the MCG. And I think that that stands out for a couple of reasons. That Matthew Mott discusses the, the final stages of the final, that he wanted to slow down time. And I know that feeling, and so do you, being at AFL Grand Finals. When you're, when you're up in the last quarter in the Grand Final, you want time to stop. You want to embrace every, you want every second to be an hour. And that's how they got that moment. They were so far ahead in the game after making the better part of 190 and they sealed it early on thanks to the, uh, the Megan shoot uh, Shafali Verma incident, not least, which is well captured as well, the idea that she had to adjust. And when we spoke to Megan on the final word last year, she explained that in great detail. But that mm. final stanza when the crowd are waving their phones around, when the attendance flashes up on the screen, it's a point in time that we can refer back to as when life's not just normal, it's not pre-COVID normal, it's beautiful at its very best. And that's what we got that night at the MCG. I was so sad to be on, on the other side of the world not to be sharing in it with you guys, but it came through the screen and it came through in the documentary that, I mean, it, it was just one of those moments in time that anyone who was there will reflect on and refer to for many years. Yeah, the moment that gets me, and I've seen it over and over again in the making of the film, but when the crowd does the wave at the end, it's just so powerful. And the music was really important to us as filmmakers and we had a composer, Greg Walker, come on board, a, a local 
musician, a Victorian musician, and he did a beautiful job with the music just to enhance the emotion of the moment. And the wave is just perfect. Yeah. It's incredibly moving. And um, to be there that night, I mean, I do, I mean, I think Nick Hockley says it in the film, I, you know, I feel sorry for those 4,000 people who didn't turn up because that is something that you, you won't forget and you'll pass down to the next generation. You know, you were there when that happened. But what I want is for this not to be a one-off. I know you can't just replicate it easily and that you have to invest a lot, but I'd like this to be used as the template for, for other sports, mm. to think big, think big. I mean, AFLW, I can't get enough of that. It's on the rise. So many girls are playing Australian football. Let's dream big there as well. Let's get them on the biggest stage. It's lazy and it's unimaginative just to keep doing things the same way. Um, you know, make a statement. I mean, Stuart Fox, who, you know, for him to be talking about women's sport the way that he's talking about it now, you've known him for a long time. I mean, he's, yeah. he's got it. You know, you've got to start from a moral position of girls deserving the same opportunities as boys. And the rest just follows. You've got to have that moral start to it. Uh, and you've absolutely made a statement that you're talking about there in that uh, inspiring closing passage. Uh, thanks for joining us today. But before we wrap up, how can people find the record? Where can they get their hands on it, uh, on their phone or on their, on their tablet or computer, I suppose? It's on um, Amazon Prime and I might have some news to share in a week or so about Ooh. where else you can see it. <laughs> but right now, <laughs> I better just say it is on Amazon and it's two by one hour documentary and it is fantastic. We, we love it and we can't wait to, um, you know, to share it with, with the world, with, it, with all cricket loving and non-cricket loving nations because there are broader themes in there that we've talked about today. So jump on to Amazon Prime and that's where you'll find it now. Congratulations, Ange. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. My baby was born a week before the first game against India. <sighs> so I was doing the live blog for the first game for the Guardian. You know, obviously I wasn't out there because she'd just been born. Yep. But um, I was doing the, the first game of the comp with Winnie sleeping next to oh. me. And then as we worked through the tournament, I was I kept like taking photos of her watching, not watching, but like kind of being in the presence of the television. Yeah. And the final game, you know, being International Women's Day, you know, the incredibly powerful thing about having a daughter, which I mean, I'm not saying that makes me any different to anyone else, by the way, but just my yeah. own personal experience. Yeah. And then I put her in this um, this raw outfit, this um, you know, Katy Perry. It's not, it wasn't a Katy Perry bit of clobber, but something she got when she was born from one of her aunties. And um, yeah. It just felt so lovely and right that her first exposure to cricket, however peripheral, was that tournament, which obviously will probably lay the foundation for women playing cricket and girls like her getting the chance to play cricket for you know in ways they never would have thought of before. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's that's beautiful. Thanks. 
final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. That little bit of audio we, we dropped in there was actually from after the interview. I, we were having a conversation about why the World Cup meant so much to us last year. And it was Winnie's birthday uh, this week, as we mentioned off the top. And, you know, pretty special time. For me, anyway, it's directly linked to that tournament because that's the first sort of time I remember experiencing cricket with her. And I thought that would uh, be worth just dropping in there for your enjoyment. Indeed. Thank you, Adam, for your candour. We're going to finish the show today with a little bit of Bannerman. <laughs> we did mention this earlier. Uh, Charles Bannerman in the first Test match in 1877 set a record for the highest percentage of runs scored in a Test innings with 67.3%. That was not difficult at the time to set a record because it was the first Test match, although they didn't know that at the time. But that record has stood the test of time. For 141 years, many have strived to beat the Bannerman, although probably not because that means your teammates aren't making any runs which is not ideal, but none have succeeded. I didn't script this, so we just seem to have got a, like a um, monkey-style <laughs> intro. You know, <laughs> in the beginning, primal chaos reigned. Uh, the nature of monkey was irrepressible. But we, we put out a call to our audience to ask for some nominations for Bannermen, I suppose. Bannerman-like exploits from cricket matches around the cricketing world that you may have experienced, participated in, heard of. And here we are. We've had quite a few, Adam. Yeah, banner men or women. We've got some women candidates here we're about to read out. This took off a little bit on social media, so we're going to read out some of the best we received uh, during the week. So Glenn Finkeld, who uh, used to play for North Dandenong Cricket Club when I was growing up, he wrote to us after listening to your pod, I did find a near bannerman of mine against Mentone. 79 out of 119, but 21 extras. So when you think about it, that's a, I mean, that's a... That's not quite up to the percentage of the great Charles, but 21 extras does complicate matters a little bit. It means that there weren't many other runs off the bat in that game. He goes on to say that we also had mm. one in under-12s where I was the only one to score out of 29. So that would suggest that in that game it was all extras <laughs> as well, other than the, the runs that he made. So... Thank you, Glenn, for an enterprising start to this segment. Yes, the only scorer out of 29 is... Oof, that is that is a bit ropey. This one I enjoyed uh, from Chris Rattle because he, he wrote in from the Buckley Ridges Club ah, in the DDCA. The same, uh, the same competition as Glenn played in uh, for North Dandenong, the DDCA, and what I grew up in. Adam's very close to the DDCA. Chris said, We were lucky enough to have David White, a former South African A batsman, as our overseas player for two seasons. He dominated the league. In this particular game, he made 147 out of a total of 181 against Hallam. That's 81.2% of the runs. He went on to make 155 not out against the same team in the prelim before making 178 in the grand final in the 1819 season. He's now working for Cricket USA and hoping to play for the USA national side once qualified. And when I looked at that scorecard, they were 9 for 66 when, uh, when he started making most of those runs. He was batting at number 6. It's not like he opened the batting. He came in, uh, came in at 6. They ended up 9 down pretty quickly and he made about another 100 runs from that point. <laughs> 
Incredible. Hopefully he gets the chance to go on to play uh, with Ian Holland, who's been playing for the uh, USA uh, national team, yeah. uh, former Victorian. Narsing Dion Aron and a few others. Yeah, well, Ian Holland won the, uh, what do they call it, Cricket Superstar in 2012, the reality TV show. He's now mm. um, playing his trade for Hampshire in the county championship, but also playing international cricket. Thank you, Chris Rattle from Buckley Ridges, fantastic club. And... The next I've got is from John Leather, the great hypercourse. Now, the boss of women's crick zone, Ananya Upendran. So this is a fantastic website, uh, women's crick zone, which we've both done some writing for and some video work and so on. And Ananya, who is running the website and doing a fantastic job, I think she's now running the magazine as well. She also plays cricket and has played at a very high level. And she carried her bat for 157 not out in Sikkim's total of 203, which is 77.3% during the Indian women's one-day competition in 2018. The 123-run partnership she was involved in as well, Jeff, for the 10th wicket was the highest for a stand for that wicket in women's list day cricket. As if that match hadn't been remarkable enough already, it ended up in a tie. That's such a hyper-course stat. It did. But that's not just, that's not where the remarkable bit ends because I went and looked up this match. So not only did Ananya make 157 out of 203, she also bowled her full 10 overs, picked up two for 35, handy just on the surface, right? But yep, yep. she took her first wicket with, with four overs to go and 15 runs to defend right. off the last 24. Then she had to bowl the final over, the 50th over, and with three balls to go, the scores were level with three balls to go. They were tied with three balls to go. She took a wicket with the fourth ball of the over, effected a run out from the fifth ball of the over and bowled a dot ball from the sixth to tie the game. <laughs> so she defended the tie, bowling the last three deliveries of the match after making 157 out of 203. Jesus Christ, we should be paying her. Ananya Upendran, uh, check out her work at Women's Crick Zone. She's a fantastic human being as well. And I think she's a listener to the final word, so a nice little surprise for you there. But the clubhouse leader, Jeff, has to be from a tweet we got last night, courtesy of your mum's uncle on Twitter. That's the handle. He Mm -hmm. said to us that he's not sure if we saw this in 2017, but some ridiculous batting in the B-grade comp in his hometown. Wow. Was it ever? I took a look at this. 46ers, Josh Dunstan struck, 46ers in an innings of Mm -hmm. 307 out of 354 for West Augusta B-grade in just 35 overs. But that's not even where it starts to get interesting. So... Well, it's obviously interesting. It has already been interesting. Yeah, that's by this 240 point. runs in sixes. I'm willing to say it's already interesting on that basis, but I'll continue anyway. 86.72%. So that's the highest percentage we've seen so far in this exploration. Mm-hmm. But the other bits and pieces make it even better. He came in when the score was one for 10 and he left when the score was seven for 328. So he made 307 of the next 318 runs that were added by West Augusta B-grade. <laughs> he was the seventh man out. He put on a 203-run partnership for that seventh wicket where the bloke down the other end made five of them. He made all the rest of the runs, uh, and he ends up, yeah, out for 307. It's a tremendous tale, clearly, from Josh Dunstan. I'm not sure if he was playing beneath his grade or whether he's just one of these freaks that rocked up and had the day of his life but 46s and that percentage and it's a true bannerman as well in the article i was reading about it it compares him to viv richards who made 70 percent of the west indian runs when he made his 189 at old trafford in 1984 Mm. but the difference there was that the west indies were were nine down it doesn't count unless 
all the wickets have been taken in the innings. I don't care about uh, this. I don't care about any of these numbers unless all 10 players have mm. been dismissed. And that's certainly the case in West Augusta B grade where Josh went bananas. Does it not count in a in a limited overs game? Like obviously it's a different kind of banner. A true bannerman can only happen in a in a first class game where where the team is all out. It can't happen in a declaration or anything like that. But in a limited overs game, you would think that if if all of the wickets don't fall, it would actually be harder to monopolise the scoring because you've got someone at the other end who's scoring. So you know, like I I reckon a, a limited overs game that's reached its full conclusion that for me is the relevant the the bannerman for the relevant format even if it's called something else i think that's a good technical point but it does muddy the water somewhat when we get to that level of uh, that level of intricacy i reckon to keep this nice and clean if you want to send in your nominations and you can beat 86.72 you've got another great story to tell let's go with all out for the sake of uh, making sure that we don't end up with because there'll be I'd imagine plenty of limited overs games where where one player, due to the circumstances of the game, have, have been able to, to do something similar. So if we stick with 10 wickets, we, we can't go wrong. But thank you for the nomination so far. That was a lot of fun. We might come back to that in a couple of weeks. And Jeff, I think that's it for another episode of The Final Word. You'll be hearing from us again on the daily shows. In fact, this might go out after the final daily show of this test match, but we'll be going back to you with uh, story time again on Saturday or Sunday. Another big weekly show coming up next week, and the daily shows will continue throughout the course of the India-England test series. Thank you to Zolio. Thank you to Seabus Super. Thank you to everybody who plays a role in, in keeping us in the podcast feeds as often as we are at the moment, which is principally down to bad producer productions thank you dc who edits us astrid and jay who run the operation there visit badproducerproductions.com to get a sense of the other work that they do and thank you jeff for your patience while i've been in a different state we'll be reunited next week where we'll be recording in person for the last couple of times before i jump on a plane and go back to london see si, senor vaya con Dios. so you know what i meant i had to go about it